Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the week's top polling stories in news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. This week's top lines. The U.S. elections stay pretty stable. The front runners stay cemented as the front runners on both the Republican and Democratic side. But we'll take a look at the data after the Democratic debate that tell us if it did or didn't change things. We'll also take a look at who might or might not make the cut for the GOP debate next week in Colorado. But slow news here in the U.S. is great news because we can take our attention back north to our neighbors in Canada, where the huge Liberal Party victories uh, can be sliced and diced. We'll take a look at the data and see if the pollsters got it right. Uh, We'll also take a look at some data on the Pope and John Boehner that both perhaps have increased their faves since moving out of the limelight in the U.S. Uh, We'll take a look at some polling on gun control. Um, How have things changed, not just in the last couple of months, but in the last couple of years on public opinion on gun control issues? And finally, parenting in the age of social media. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it ugly? (laughs) That's right in our sweet spot when we get to that. So, um, uh, So we had a Democratic debate last week, and we did last week's episode just about like the day or two after that debate. And there wasn't a lot of polling. There wasn't any polling, just three focus groups from three different networks and uh, online sentiment. And all of it seemed to point to a Sanders gain, even if the uh, the media very unanimously pointed toward a strong Clinton night. And then as the week progressed after we released the show and then over the last few days, there have been a lot of new polls out and they show a little bit more of a mixed reaction to, uh, well, what the big picture is. But I think we can still stand by what our initial claim was, which is Sanders can gain by having more people want to learn more information about him, which is what the online sentiment showed. And at the same time that people can think that Clinton won the debate. And so we should talk about all these polls because there are a ton, right? So there have been a few in New Hampshire. So the Boston Globe and WMUR did a poll in New Hampshire right after the debate. And this was one that, that uh, one of the few that showed uh, Clinton up in New Hampshire. Normally that's Sanders country since he's from neighboring Vermont. Um, but their poll showed uh, Clinton at 37, Sanders at 35, with a majority showing that uh, Clinton 
uh, people thought Clinton won the debate. Um, and also a lot of folks thinking that maybe Joe Biden should not enter the race. That was something that some folks have been asking. But then if you look at Franklin Pierce and the Boston Herald poll, again in New Hampshire, that shows um, that uh, that um, people were supportive of Sanders. And so you see in that uh, in that vote also showed Sanders up 10 points. And this is New Hampshire. And this is the same time by a rival Boston paper showed, you know, kind of different results and also more enthusiasm in Sanders' favorability over Clinton. That's something that we've seen in a lot of places. And if you take a look in that poll, they ask their respondents, um, what's your reason for supporting the candidate that you support? Um, for the 137 people that said they supported Clinton, the top response overwhelmingly was has the best qualifications at 45 percent, trailed very distantly at 19 percent by supports issues important to you. However, for Bernie Sanders, that was the number one item, 42 percent, saying that they choose him because he supports issues that are important to them. This is for, again, an end size of 177. So, you know, take with with all those necessary grains of salt. Um, Only 3 percent pick Bernie Sanders because they think he has the best qualifications. For Joe Biden, interestingly enough, um, so just today on Tuesday, he... Uh, I believe, gave some kind of a press conference or an interview where he said something about, you know, wanting to be the type of guy who could work with Republicans, um, which got a lot of play in Republican circles. We thought, oh, this is interesting. Does this mean that you're running? And here in this uh, in this poll of the 61 people who said that Biden was their first choice, the number one reason why they chose him was that he can work with Democrats and Republicans at 36 percent choosing that option, 20 percent then choosing stands firm on issues and values, and 18 percent choosing has the best qualifications. So it seems that if you like Clinton, you think she's experienced. If you like Sanders, you like the issue positions he holds. And if you like Joe Biden, you think that he's someone who can play nice and get things done on both sides. Right, which goes back to, and we'll talk about a little bit in some of the national polling, the difference between the gain in the vote such as it is in some of these polls, and the who won um, can be different. And it's not mutually exclusive for voters to have that impression, especially since we're talking about reinforcing what people are already thinking about the candidates. You have people sort of seeing Clinton's performance and saying, yes, that's the person who has the most experience, ready to be president, those kinds of trait values. It reinforces that rather than maybe builds up a different trait area. What I think this is all suggesting is that there's not a lot of reason why anybody would have watched the debate who already had a strong impression of at least one of the candidates and had their mind changed dramatically. If you didn't know about Bernie Sanders, this may have put him on your radar. But if you take a look at the NBC survey monkey poll of um, of Democratic uh, primary voters, um, they found that 56 percent said that Hillary Clinton did the best job in the debate. 33 percent said Bernie Sanders did. And then when you took a look at who they plan to vote for, 31 percent say they plan to vote for Bernie Sanders, 45 percent for Hillary Clinton, but then another 10 percent for Joe Biden, who was not there on the debate stage. So interestingly enough, I mean, the Bernie Sanders, the third that say he did the best job in the debate, I would suspect there's quite a bit of overlap with the 31 percent who say he's who they'll vote for, Yeah, that you may just have you know, we wondered on last week's show, you had the pundits saying, oh, Hillary Clinton clearly won. And then you had uh, all these sort of qualitative data points, as well as the online buzz suggesting maybe Bernie Sanders would increase. Um, it turns out now when you have the surveys, I mean, the, I think a big question is people who say Hillary Clinton won, are they saying that because they watched it and they judged her to be the winner? Or are they saying it because 
all the headlines the next right. day said Hillary Clinton won. Like, yes, I can recite back a headline I read, too. Right. And I actually reached out to one of the pollsters from one of these national polls and said, can you do a breakout of people who watched it versus people who just read the headlines and saw clips because they may get a very different impression. And this person said, well, I can share it with you, but it's the sample size is just not big enough. So yeah. you can't talk about it. I'm like, well, then don't share it with me. Because, I don't want to know. I can't. I don't trust myself to not share it with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but one more New Hampshire poll, and then we'll talk about the national poll, and that's our own Purple Strategies poll that we do with Bloomberg and St. Anselm's College in New Hampshire. And there'll be a lot of data released from this uh, over the next few days after this show is released. But what I can tell you is that we, too, find Sanders ahead of Clinton, um, Sanders at 41, Clinton at 36, with Biden in, he's at 10. Um, without Biden, it's Sanders 47 and Clinton 39. So that's another poll that shows Sanders up. Again, this is New Hampshire where you'd expect him uh, to be up, but perhaps, maybe not, a bounce um, for Clinton. Although uh, our last poll in New Hampshire, in, in this particular poll, was in June, which is obviously a long time ago as, as this uh, election season has had a lot of ups and downs and twists and turns in the last few months. But, you know, to Kristen's point of, you know, can you, what's the difference between uh, changing your view towards somebody uh, versus saying who won the debate in Huffington Post YouGov poll, you have more people saying that Clinton won the debate. That's clear, um, a plurality there. But then you could answer any one of the following. You can answer as many candidates as you like. Have you improved your opinion of any of these candidates? And you could say yes to all of them. And there you saw no difference between Clinton and Sanders. 29% said they improved their impression of Clinton. 30% said they improved their impression of Sanders. So it, it shows that you you know there is a gain to be had even if the debate winner is clear, at least clear if you're reading the news coverage. I mean, I'm of the opinion that that is the question that decides who won the debate, that asking people who won the debate is, you know, you don't have a scoring rubric in front of you. I mean, you can say somebody did the best, sure. But I think the real metric that matters at this stage in the game is, did you change anyone's mind about you? Right. As Carly Fiorina, we'll talk about that in a second. Which would she prefer to win the debate or have a, you know, long lasting bounce, right? And right. then one other thing I'll note on all of these national studies too is when they ask and the difference between the Democratic debate and the Republican debate. So when we had the Republican debate, they'd have all these questions. Who did the best? And, and Trump was the winner of that. Who did the worst? And Trump, Trump. <laughs> he won that. You did not see that on the Democratic side. And Clinton won the debate. Uh, Sanders came in second. Sanders didn't lose the debate. The debate loss went to some of the other folks that are on st- <laughs> were on the stage. Um, not oh, to Clinton. Lincoln and Chafee. He's a Lincoln, block of granite. <laughs> Lincoln Chafee and Jim Webb, they are neck and neck for who lost that debate. Well, at least Jim Webb is Lincoln. now no longer a Democratic candidate, so. He can win the independent debate and get as much time as he needs. There we go. <laughs> And does this mean we get Alec Baldwin playing him forever and ever now? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, Larry, it probably will not surprise you, Kristen, to know that at the Tacoma Park Street Festival this past weekend. Oh, Tales from TKPK. <laughs> you could hear like a buzz, a street of people talking about Larry Sanders' impression of Bernie Sanders. I mean, Larry David's impression of Bernie Sanders. I mean, now they're the same person. But anyway, um, you, I could hear people talking about it as I walked around like, yes, of course, that's the buzz. That and the new wine that's available in our town. So those are the two things we Ooh, care about. Ooh, that sounds fun. So, um, so moving on to 
And then a few other national polls, right? So you had NBC and CNN also released some polls, and they perhaps show a little bit of different story than some of maybe the New Hampshire polls. NBC in particular showed some gains for Clinton in the Washington Post ABC poll. She's now at 56. Sanders at 22. In their last poll in September, she was at 46. So she moved up 10 points. Now, we don't know if that's from the debate per se, or over the past month. This polling all really comes together to support the headline that Clinton has kind of stopped the bleeding. That Not that I think she was ever in as much peril as the headlines would have suggested, because as we've talked about on this show over and over and over again, Democratic voters really like Hillary Clinton and they're not upset about her emails, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know that this whole idea that the Clinton campaign was in free fall and this stopped the free fall, like that right. one, that's overblown. But it, it both is, directions were overblown. Right. right. The free fall and the rebound were both overblown. Yeah. Um, that, that in this case, you know, it's just sort of like a, the, the slow slide has sort of been stopped at this point. But again, one, we are not going to know anything until Joe Biden makes up his mind because that – that will change everything. Right. That will change One way or the other. Right. Because he's now in the like 10 to 20 percent range, depending on the poll. It's a big slice of pie to get redistributed if e- he's out. Exactly. So. And that will immediately grow, I would think, if he gets in. You know, presumably, I mean, he had, you know, he had kind of a lackluster entry to the campaign when he ran for president last time around. Um, you know, presumably he would he'd nail it this time around. And would that, you know, boost his numbers and you know, taking from Clinton or taking from Clinton and Sanders equally? It depends on the poll. Some polls show it's clearly uh, clearly comes from Clinton. Some polls show a little bit from both. So so we'll see that too. Um, you know the CNN poll shows Biden at eighteen, down from twenty two in September. But still, that's a pretty big piece. That's bigger than some of the other polls that show around ten. So that's quite a bit. On the Republican side of the aisle, the GOP debate coming up next week in Boulder, Colorado, uh, has a different set of rules and a sort of different format than the other debates. So in the the last two Republican debates, we've talked on the show about who's going to make the cut for the top 10 or top 11 or who's going to be in the happy hour debate or the kids table debate or whatever we call it. I believe for the CNBC debate, there is no kids table. No kids you're table. in or you're out. And they're setting a guideline of you have to have, I believe it's 2.5 percent. Right. And there's no cutoff as to how many people – they could have eight people. They could have 11 people. If you make 2.5, you're going to be on the stage. Right. So then the question becomes – who gets left out? And right now, the folks who are on the bubble, so clearly a Rick Santorum, a George Pataki, a Bobby Jindal, a Lindsey Graham, a Jim Gilmore, our happy hour debate folks of, of the past, none of them have made a convincing case that they, they deserve to belong in the top. You'll hear rumblings from Jindal supporters that because he's doing well in Iowa, he should be in. This is a similar case to the one that Carly Fiorina made, um, but in their case... I don't think it's going to work out this time because I think the assumption is we're too far down the road. Carly Fiorina started off in a happy hour debate and was able to turn that into deserving to be on the main stage. Governor Jindal has not done so. Right. Um, But the other people who are on the bubble. So we have two national polls that are out this week. Um, NBC Wall Street Journal showing Donald Trump remains at the top of the pack. 
It is almost Halloween. I think a lot of folks thought that by the time we hit Halloween, you could safely dress up as Donald Trump for Halloween and not actually be dressing as the Republican frontrunner. Not but, giving him an in-kind contribution. But <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Um, ben Carson remains in second place at 22 points. Marco Rubio in third place at 13. Um, Carly Fiorina in the last poll had been tied for third, but she has now slipped uh, into sixth place. She's got seven points. There's really just a core top six in this NBC poll, and then everybody else is basically on the bubble. Huckabee's only got 3%. Kasich only has 3%. Paul only has 2%. Christie only has 1%. So those folks are all kind of hovering in the danger zone if you just look at this NBC poll. Yeah. If you look at the Huffington Post pollster rolling average, just Kasich drops out from that Mm -hmm. bubble group. Christie and Paul are still in and Huckabee, they're all still in, but it's close. I mean, you know, I I don't know what else is coming out in the next couple of days. I mean, presumably there'll be another Fox poll because I think CNN NBC said they're only going to accept polls from the network. So they're not accepting polls from Quinnipiac or something like right. that. Right. It's only the network. So I don't think we have, we've seen one from Fox in a few days. Anyway, there's a whole other week. So who, right. everybody could release a whole new round for so, all we know. So CNN um, ORC also released a poll that showed the, the same sort of rankings, the same top two. Trump at 27%. This is not Trump's high watermark in the CNN poll. Um, it was the high watermark in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. But in this case, um, Trump's high watermark had come uh, around Labor Day in CNN. He's slipped slightly since then, but of course, don't say that. He'll he would never he, he would rebounded. never characterize it that way. And he's gone up since their last yeah. poll. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you heard lots of people saying, "Aha." The Trump bubble has burst. We knew it would it would burst. I and think then... we were pretty humble about that on this show. I oh, think we did yes, not. Yes, we make did not do claims. that. But other people did that. <laughs> <laughs> I admit I made a lot. If you go back and listen to our episodes from June, oh yeah, those probably haven't aged well. <laughs> no, well, everybody initially thought that it was crazy. That I mean, I think nobody has egg on their face guilty. for that. Yeah, <laughs> we are all guilty. Um, but he, the rebound. People kind of danced on his grave a little too prematurely because he did drop, and then he just he's come back up. And, I've, I've been saying the last week that Donald Trump is like Madonna. He's just the king of reinventing himself and that every new <laughs> chapter brings a new opportunity for him to remain in the headlines and therefore at the top of the polls. That's so right. This past week, it's been Donald strong, Trump, strong 9-11, 9-11 conspiracy, Bush's fault guy. Then he'll go to the debate next week. God knows what will come out of that. And then we have Saturday Night Live, November 7th. So... The Trump reinvention machine has plenty of pivot moments and new chapters to unfold. Yeah, so. he's been teasing vice presidential, you know, picks. I mean, it's this he is, said was saying crazier things have happened. I mean, which is not. <laughs> See, you're kind of laughing because you're like, this is ridiculously amusing. I'm like, this man's going to speak at the convention. Yeah, like. No, no, Margie. It's it's Margie. It's you're going to have to help me through this. <laughs> it's 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 a problem for our broader discourse for sure. I mean, I think Democrats feel that way too. I oh, think, thank you. I, thank you. Because you know, it, it's it's divisive, and ultimately, we're all we all you know. At least on the left, we have a shared goal of not being divisive. We don't want to see you know Republican language be divisive because our goal is to not have that divisive language. And he kind of epitomizes that. Um, that so, but you know, so that said. He's still winning. He's still up. Um, you know. he, he is still he is the front runner, and that is a term that I was uncomfortable using in yeah. July. I would not call him the front runner. I yeah. will call him the front runner now. And um, what's interesting between the CNN and the NBC polls is that they show the same top two. 
Trump and Carson. And then they both show um, Rubio and Bush in the top five. Um, but Cruz, there's a, a pretty big difference between where Cruz stands in NBC versus CNN. He falls to 4 percent in the CNN poll. Fiorina falls f- very yeah. far. She falls from 15 points in their last poll a month ago down to 4 percent in this one. So it's not in danger of not making the next debate, but that's a pretty big decline. Um, and, and to your point from earlier suggests just because people say you won a debate doesn't necessarily mean you are – you have changed their mind about you right. for the long haul. A good debate performance may be necessary, but it's probably not sufficient. Yeah. Um, but these CNN numbers may actually be the things that are boosting uh, Rand Paul, Chris Christie, Mike Huckabee, John Kasich in the, the polling average you mentioned earlier because here each of them winds up with 5 or 4 percent. Kasich gets 3, but again, that's still all enough to put them in that yeah. CNBC debate. So the, the CNN poll may, may wind up saving a lot of these, a lot of these guys from relegation to, to the bottom league. Yep, yep. So, uh, and you know, one other thing to keep a watch on is Jeb Bush. If Jeb Bush was not Jeb Bush, we'd be all we'd be talking about him the way we talk about Scott Walker. Like, you know, why is he still in? Is there pressure for him to get out? But he, you know, he's been running ads for a long time. He ha- has the ability to, to stay in the game financially for a long time. Yet has underperformed consistently. He's, you know, his lead has been soft from the beginning, and now his lead is, you know, now his performance is really. Um, it's you know it's on quicksand or it's not on any solid ground. He very easily can lose ground to folks who are not communicating in as much paid advertising as he is, like Rubio and Fiorina. I think the thing that that troubles me the most about Jeb, if I'm a if I'm a Jeb staffer, is that if you take a look at CNN's poll in June, um, June 26th through 28th, this was one of the first ones, by the way, where Trump he came in second place, and that's where people started saying. Oh, Kristen, what's going on with Trump? And I would tell them, like, everybody shut up. It's just one poll. Leave me alone. It's not that big a deal. Um, in in the June CNN poll, you had Bush in first place at 17 percent and Trump at 12. What should concern Bush is that he's lost a bunch of support. Like, it, And this isn't just, you know, conservative base people who who already didn't like him that, you know, that weren't in that June crop. That he's bled people who initially were kind of open to hearing what he had to say, and and in in some many cases, it looks like he's bled them to Carson and Trump. And I think that's why you're seeing him kind of like take all these swings back at Trump. Like yeah. he takes Trump's bait all the time and yeah. punches back. And uh, so that I think the Bush the Bush it's not a collapse. I mean, he's still in the top five, and he's still got a hundred million dollars in a super PAC. But how much can TV advertising change minds in this case? Can $100 million in a super PAC fight Hurricane Trump? And he's on the air not not completely by himself on the Republican side, but mostly by himself. I know Kasich's up and, you know, other Republican candidates have their super PAC, you know, doing some television. But it's basically Bush on TV, if I'm not mistaken, in the two early primary states. And so despite that, you know, you don't always get this amount of time all to yourself. And so he has that yet is still unable to kind of, you know, build a base where people are getting excited about him. You know, that that's that's problematic. Well, let's take a look then at the the last piece of things in terms of domestic electoral politics. So the other sort of political drama of the moment is what's going on on Capitol Hill with the replacement for John Boehner, who is very eager to be out of the job of 
as Speaker of the House. Um, and many of you who are political uh, you know, news followers will recall that he announced he was stepping down the day after Pope Francis's visit and address to Congress. And there's this fabulous piece written by Bob Costa at the Washington Post all about sort of catching Boehner the evening after Pope Francis's visit and sort of just feeling like Boehner was a changed man a little bit from his encounter. Uh, and so therefore being sort of less surprised the next day when Boehner announced his news. So as we've talked about before, Boehner's favorables were not great. Lots of frustration from the Republican Party. Um, The most important job nobody wanted. The most important job nobody feels like being second or third in line to presidency. (laughs) Nobody nobody feels like it. Well, it turns out that stepping down from the speakership has changed attitudes about John Boehner at least a little bit. Um, So when uh, Gallup last asked, um, his unfavorables had reached 54 percent in the poll prior to the one that they just released. Um, They have now released a poll um, as of, I believe this is October. Um, Yes, October ratings um, compared to August ratings. And Boehner is, he's certainly still in, in underwater territory, but his favorables have increased from 23% to 31%. His unfavorables have fallen from 54% to 45%. Um, and his brand has really not changed at all among Republicans. He's still underwater with Republicans. Where his brand has really improved has been independents and Democrats sort of coming around and now they're going, oh. We love that John Boehner. Gosh, that John Boehner. Now what are we going to do? And, and so now you have this fascinating phenomenon where, well, we talked about this before, where his unfavorables um, were almost as high among Republicans as with independents and Democrats. You now have it as the case that there is very little difference in how you view John Boehner based on your political attitudes. That, yeah. you know, his the, it's underwater across all three groups. Um, but actually, John Boehner's brand among independents is about this is fairly similar to what it is with Republicans. Yeah. And then Gallup also asks, and this is, you know, uh, another thing that you should look in this poll, Gallup, NBC, Wall Street Journal had a question. I think there's going to be more in the next couple days about what happens next. Right. So can you be successful or what kind of Republican speaker should we have? And should it be one that kind of, you know, is willing to shut down the government and and stand up for principles or one that's willing to compromise something along those lines? Right. There's different ways of looking at it, asking at asking about it. Gallup's question is now, do you think? Having a new uh, leader in Congress will make Republicans more successful in getting legislation passed or less successful or will not make a difference. Probably not a surprise. Two-thirds overall, people say it's not going to make a difference. However, among Tea Party Republicans, they're actually divided. Among non-Tea Party Republicans, even more say it won't make a difference. But among Tea Party Republicans who are supposedly seen as being behind uh, Boehner not wanting to be speaker anymore, whether or not they forced him out or they just made the job, you know, no longer fun for him or anybody else, really, since nobody else wants to wants the job. Um, it's it's interesting that this is where you see a real division in terms of, you know, the, uh, a sen- maybe a sense of optimism among this one group, not among any of the other groups that they, they broke out here, that maybe Republicans will be more successful. So we'll see. NBC Wall Street Journal had a question, do you want someone who's going to compromise or stand up for principle? And I think there about two-thirds said, 
stand up for principle. There may be other questions. I mean, I think one thing to look at is what are, what does that mean to stand up on principle? Is it just sort of standing up on principle or does it mean, you know, shutting down the government? Does it mean, you know, what's the consequence there? And I think that's an important layer to how we think about this question. It's not simply can you get things passed, yes or no, or are you standing up on principle, but what what's the downside? And one final tidbit on this story. Gallup has also asked the fave unfave for Pope Francis. Uh, So he is also someone who now, having left the limelight of the U.S. media a little bit, um, has seen his favorables improve. Pope Francis, um, back in July, before his visit, had 59% of people who said they were favorable to him, 16% said unfavorable, and a quarter had no opinion. Since then, his unfavorables have stayed the same, but the percentage that have no opinion or have never heard of him has fallen, and almost all of that has turned into favorable views, with 7 out of 10 people saying they view the Pope favorably. So he clearly got a post-visit bounce. Sometimes you see candidates hoping you can have a presidential candidate go to their town and give them a boost, and you know you have the debate boost for various candidates. Candidates, Boehner's resignation boost, <laughs> Pope Francis, presumably, I guess not a surprise that he got a boost. He boosted himself after his visit since it was so well received by basically everybody. Well, now let's go ahead and take a look at what happened with our neighbors to the north. The Canadian elections polls closed yesterday. Justin Trudeau, uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, will become the next prime minister and he will lead a majority government. He will not have to enter into a coalition with anyone in order to govern. Now, on the show a couple of weeks ago, we walked through a variety of different scenarios of just how crazy things could have gotten had nobody won a majority of seats because a few weeks ago, the polls were neck and neck. If right. You take That's a when look- we started looking at this. It was totally tied. And I was like, oh, God, there's, what if there's some polling crisis, you know, with a, something this close? It could be easy to call it wrong. Right. And, you know, if you look back at the at the sort of polling averages, if you look at um, actually all throughout August, the liberals were the, the lowest party in the polling averages of the three major parties with the NDP atop the polls. Um, by the time you hit mid-September, everything had sort of converged and then wound up sort of splitting back out again with a huge decline for the NDP, um, a huge increase for the liberals. Conservatives stayed about stable, but of course it wasn't enough for them to hang on to their majority. Um, and so in the end, you have the liberals going from, I believe, something like 40 or some seats, 50 some seats, all the way up to 184 seats. In yeah. Parliament, um, the Conservatives fall to 99 seats, and the NDP again, which was potentially expected to be the the possible majority party, as as recently as August, only came in with 44 seats. Yeah, and in terms of polling, I mean, we will link to something in our show notes that looks at every outlet in the days up till the election. And what's interesting about the table is they show the polling method, and they're all over the place. There's telephone, there's IVR, which is automated, which is uh, more readily available there than it's becoming here. Um, there's online, online and phones. I mean, there's all kinds of different m- modes. But whatever mode people use, they all pointed to a liberal plurality in the popular vote. Um, and Nick Nanos, who we had on the show last week, it looks like his poll basi- uh, you know, basically nailed it, you know, just about nailed it more or less. But every outlet really said, you know, that liberals were going to win. Um, one outlet, the forum poll said liberals were grasping at majority. That was their language. They had liberals at 40 percent. But one of the questions that, you know, I'd like to know the answer, we're going to have a guest that maybe can help us answer this, is 
um, the difference between polling for the popular vote, which pollsters were, were able to get more or less right fairly fairly easily. Certainly, you know, overall the trend was uh, showed that. But um, d- you know, the the majority getting a majority for liberals was a bit of a surprise. And so, does this now mean a polling win or another situation where you have polling perhaps you know not indicating exactly what was going to happen, like we saw in the UK and in Israel? It seems here that the story, at least from what we've been able to tell is not that polling got it wrong, that polling doesn't seem part of the story at all, which I guess is a, is a good outcome. Good job, pollsters. <laughs> good job, pollsters. We but, needed a win. <laughs> but I think if it had been, a, even if it had been slightly the story that Canadian pollsters called it wrong for a third international election in a row, that would be like that would be major news. I mean, you'd have a lot of people really talking about what does this mean for the industry today? Yeah. And, and I don't see that. In this case, I mean, I think there's the the question of how do you poll in ridings is very similar to how does a generic ballot question in the U.S. translate into congressional seats? I mean, here we have gerrymandering and districts that are shaped insanely weirdly and are carved a particular way. So it's it's not exactly the same. But of course, in the U.K. elections, you know, you had the um, the Scottish National Party who had, you know, if in national polls had a very small percentage of the vote, but were able to sort of sweep all of these um, districts in Scotland, constituencies, sorry, I'm, I almost said ridings. I'm like, that's not the right word. That's Canada. <laughs> constituencies. Um that, you know, in these parliamentary systems where you have a multitude of parties who are competitive, it's just the seat projections seem to be what's the hardest. Right. Um, and, and here I think the final seat projections did have a majority liberal government within the realm of possibility, but it was like the edge of their confidence interval. Right, right. And so now we're going to have a brief conversation with Elizabeth Senna from GQR, and they did some work with writings in uh, one of the first progressive independent expenditure programs. So it's something that's very commonplace in the United States to have independent expenditure programs where an outside group uh, provides funds and resources and campaigns kind of outside of the individual campaigns themselves or candidates themselves, I guess one of our big exports, perhaps. And so we're going to talk to her a little bit about what she did. So thanks so much, Elizabeth, for joining us today. If you could tell us briefly a little bit about what you and your firm did uh, in your big victory with liberals yesterday. GQR and I were the pollster for a nonpartisan independent expenditure called Engage Canada. And our role in Engage Canada's role was to weaken Harper and the conservatives um, before the writ period. Um, we were a progressive entity um, and, you know, we're not for one of the progressive parties or the other. Um, our objective really was to try to take out Harper. And so talk to us a little bit about the polling climate in Canada. So, you know, we've been following, our listeners have been following it, and we want to make heads or tails of how you poll for the national popular vote, where we saw a lot of pollsters call it and and hit the nail on the head versus calling the individual ridings and what that means for a seat projection and how that didn't really, people didn't really seem to see such a liberal landslide coming their way. What's your experience? What did you guys see and what's your perspective of looking at the polling climate in Canada? Of course. So I, I can talk to that in two ways. So one, with Engage Canada, 
our polling was centered on battleground ridings that had, were held by the conservatives. Um, it had been won by the conservatives from a margin of like 1% last time to, um, I believe it was up to like 25%. Um, so we had a, a wide range of the margin. So we were really battleground focused, knowing that in order for the conservatives to lose, they needed to lose, you know, a large portion of these ridings. You know, a lot of them concentrated in the lower mainland of British Columbia and also in Ontario, specifically the ridings in Toronto that they held, and then also in what we call the 905 or the greater Toronto area. And these ridings had oscillated back and forth between the Conservatives and one of the progressive parties over the past several uh, elections, national elections. One of the things to keep in mind um, with this with this election was that we had an addition of 30 seats. So we went from 308 ridings to 338 ridings, where the additions came in Ontario. They, uh, there were a couple, I believe, in Alberta and in British Columbia. And in Canada, the difference between the United States is that when we do reapportionment in the United States, right, we keep the same number of seats. In Canada, we add seats. And so I think this is where some of the complexities of the projections came about. Oftentimes with projections, you use past results in those ridings. But this time, everybody was using transposed votes from the previous 308 ridings and putting them forward to the 338. And an initial glance, and I still, I believe this wasn't inaccurate, um, it looked like a, the reapportionment, the, the new distribution of the 338 seats, was more advantageous for the conservatives. And so when you transpose those votes on the surface, it looked like it was better for them. So I think that's why we have the national vote, which a lot of the public polling was pretty close to accurate of what we saw um, compared to what the what the writing projections were. Traditionally in Canadian politics and the national polling, when you get a party that's coming close to 40%, you they're getting close to majority territory. That's where you start to see those, those numbers. But I think with these new, the new writing boundaries and the trans, transposition of the, the previous votes, I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the factors. Um, it's why the, the projections for the seats were slightly off. I want to ask a question about methodology, since so many of our listeners are really interested in this. Um, are there things that you have to do differently when you're polling in Canada compared to when you're polling in the United States? Yes, uh, that's an excellent question. So in the United States, typically, whether you are an independent expenditure, a candidate, or potentially even a, a news organization, um, you know, or interested party, you can access a voter file. So whether that is from the party organizations, whether that is from, you know, companies that serve one or the other parties, um, or companies that, that sell them, right? You, you have that ability. And they mm -hmm. typically come with phone numbers or other information about it. And there's model scores, and there's there's a lot of options out there, I should say, in terms of pulling your sample, identifying. And in Canada, that's not as much the case. The the parties have access to some lists, and, and voter files are sort of being built up, but they're not in the same sense that we talk about in the United States. For other organizations, it, it's literally a screening process, a self-screening process, like you might do with a random digit dialing um, in the United States. And so it's it's a little bit more in terms of figuring out your screening and making sure that your demographics in your poll are what you would expect um, for an electorate 
I th- I'm also wondering, um, in the, the ridings where you were polling, what were the issues that you were finding were the most um, important to these voters who you were trying to persuade away from voting conservative into voting for one of the conservative or one of the progressive parties? So, pre, you know, pre, pre-rip period um, and even throughout the, the course of the election as, as what we saw, the economy and jobs are really at the forefront. You know, the Canadian economy had been stalled slipping into, you know, the technical definition of a recession. Um, and that really was on the, the minds of Canadians. The other item that, that is always on the minds of Canadians is, is health care. And I think the, the key thing about health care in Canada is that it's also a sense of national pride. And it's almost, it's a Canadian identity and a Canadian value. And it's always something that when you ask about more important, most important issue, that always pops to the, the forefront. And so what you saw in, in some of the advertising out there is that healthcare itself wasn't necessarily being talked about in a bunch of specifics or always in policy form. It was being used as a Canadian value, um, which we saw, you know, definitely is something that resonates with. So with people Canadians. were worried about it not being protected. So a vote for liberals was a vote to protect it? In terms of cuts, you know, there was threats that the that the Harper government was gonna was gonna cut healthcare. Anytime you bring that in, and and one thing to keep in mind with the way it works in Canada is that the federal government funds a lot of healthcare, but it is administered at a provincial level, and so each of the provinces and the voters have a unique experience with it. And so I can talk to you know Ontario, for example, going all the way back to like the Mike Harris era when he was premier of Ontario, um, you know, there was a lot of cuts to healthcare and that still resonates with Ontario voters, you know, and Ontario had the largest battleground in this election. And so talking about healthcare cuts, even on a federal level in terms of reduction of funding or redirection of funds, that resonates and just brings up bad memories. So I wrote a whole bunch of stuff in my book, The Selfie Vote. Sorry, I have to plug it on every That's time right. we record a show. Um, I about, have been here to plug later, but we'll plug it twice. <laughs> about uh, Jason Kenney, who's a conservative member of parliament who had done a lot in terms of um, minority and, and sort of immigrant community outreach for the conservatives um, over the last few years. And and the, the, that was a big piece of how the conservatives wound up coming into government in the first place almost 10 years ago. Um it seems to me that, that that dynamic has changed now that the conservatives have lost so many seats. What can you tell me about sort of the, the racial and ethnic um, demographics and, and how that, you, you believe, you know, shook out in this election? You know, there's so many cities in Canada that are so racially, ethnically diverse. And, you know, a majority of Canadians are really proud of that. We're really proud of our multiculturalism. And... I think there was some backlash this election in terms of how the conservatives use that, and they tried to use it as as wedge issues. Um, you know, they definitely tried to play to some of the ethnic communities. The, the previous election, the ethnic communities on Ontario and the, the GTA area, in part, handed the majority to the conservatives. And, you know, what they had done over the course of their four years and, and almost the buildup of their, their 10-year rule, and then trying to use things as wedge issues, the you know, the, the racially and ethnically diverse communities, I believe I'd had enough. Great. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. That was really helpful. I mean, I think uh, we definitely have a better understanding of what happened, and I'm, I know our listeners will. So thanks so much for taking the time, and congrats on your wins. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Bye. Take care. I love all this stuff about American political campaigns being ex- style efforts being exported elsewhere. I'm really excited, by the way, for this. Um, oh gosh, it's gonna Sandra Bullock's gonna be in it. Our brand is crisis. Yes. We, free plug for a Hollywood film. Yes. We don't have sponsors on this show. I'm just gonna coin the phrase. My hair is crisis. That's, that's all I can come up <laughs> my with. My hair is crisis. <laughs> Our brand is crisis is good too. But that, can, I, that should be like a supplemental <laughs> podcast. A 10-minute after show That's right. where we just talk about <laughs> complete ridiculousness. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, so moving on to um, some other uh, top issues in the news. And uh, often you'll see in the wake of mass shootings like uh, the tragedy in Oregon uh, recently that outlets like Gallup or Pew and uh, the other news outlets will do some polling on guns. And you saw a wave of gun polling uh, released recently from Gallup. And we talked about gun polling on the show before, and we can talk about it uh, talk about it again because some of the numbers I think show the mixed bag that this issue is with a lot of Americans, and you can see that people can hold a variety of different conflicting views in their head at the same time. So on the one hand, you see um, more, say, uh, a boost in the percentage that say they want to see uh, gun laws be more strict. And as opposed to kept as they are, that's dropped down and uh, less strict has basically stayed the same. So you now have a majority, 55 percent say more strict. It's not always a majority. It hasn't always been a majority since if you look back to 2000. Um, that's, you know, sometimes it's over half, sometimes it's not. So this is a little bit of a of a boost. And I've t- talked and I've spoken and written about this question before, because while it's useful to look at the tracking and what people think about how they view gun laws broadly, you don't know what they're thinking about when you ask them make these laws stronger or less strong or, or keep them at, uh, keep them the same. For one, because people don't know what the gun laws are and, and and the gun laws nationally are different than the gun laws that vary from state to state. So they are responding to a different set of gun laws that they say they want stricter or less strict or kept the same. So that makes this question a little bit hard to then extrapolate, say, well, that means people want X, Y, and Z law because you don't actually know from that question. Nonetheless, still important tracking. Then if you look at some specific measures, right? So there are a couple specific measures that Gallup tests. One is a handgun ban, not up for debate, but uh, opposition to it has increased nonetheless, even though it's not something that folks have discussed. Well, but this what's fascinating to me is this question has data going back to the 50s. Yeah. This is a question that back in 1959, 60 percent of Americans back then said that there should be a handgun ban. And remember, 36 percent said there should not be. And those numbers are completely flipped the other yeah, way around Yeah, they're, they're even more than flipped. And in fact, didn't we have an old poll from the archives from Roper and it, one of the questions was from the 40s, like ban guns for anybody except for police. And the majority said yes or something like that. So so th- there has been a real sea change in views towards that. Um, then you ask about uh, background, you know, uh, background checks and the background checks overwhelmingly people support. So that's a completely different mm-hmm. result. Eighty six percent of folks say they support background checks. There's this fascinating question that they ask where they say, suppose more Americans were allowed to carry concealed weapons if they passed a criminal background check in a training course. If more Americans carried concealed weapons, would the United States be safer or less safe? And 56 percent say safer, 41 percent say less safe. The demographic breakdowns are really interesting on this. Men 
Overwhelmingly, 62 to 37 say safer versus less safe. Women much more closely divided. 50 percent say safer, 45 percent say less safe. And this is yet another question where I have found this weird phenomenon. Well, I, I say weird. I only say weird because when you tell people this, they get very surprised. But this is not the only poll where I've seen y- the youngest respondents are the most likely to sort of be – I don't want to say pro-gun rights because that's not what this question is about. But 66 percent of those aged 18 to 29 say we'd be safer if more people carried concealed weapons. Only a third say less safe, which makes them very different than the other age groups where the the margin is much closer. So that blows people's minds to think that younger people are the demographic group that seems to be the most – I don't want to say pro-gun. Again, that's not the right way to frame it, but – I mean, maybe it's based on where people are going to be, which groups are going to be using guns or perceive themselves as the gun holders because men are more likely to be, to say they'd be safer, younger. I'm not sure how that shakes out, but gun owners overwhelmingly say. I'd love to know more about that. Rural folks and rural folks say we're more likely to be safer. You know, you're divided in big cities. You're divided among people who are not gun owners. You're more divided among uh, older, you know, seniors. So maybe that plays a I don't know. We can't really quite tell all of that from this question. Um, and then there's, you know, a last a last question, which is if there was a background check law, going back to the background check question, would it reduce the number of mass shootings a great deal, a moderate amount, a little or not at all? And there you see uh, about half saying it wouldn't have an effect, either a little or not at all, about a third say not at all, um, have an effect on mass shootings. So when you look at, and, and again, this is something that folks who uh, are on the stronger gun law side say when we look at these data um, that th- these kinds of questions, whether ca- you know carrying concealed weapons makes you safer or less safe, or whether background check would have an effect on uh, mass shootings, um, f- puts the focus perhaps disproportionately, well, it's certainly disproportionately to the number of deaths, but puts the focus disproportionately on mass shootings rather than, you know, broader gun, you know, broader safety, or as we've seen in some of the weeks since Oregon, um, accidents, you know, the tragedy of accidents, so, which is, you know, not covered from this. And so if the question had been, if people are carrying concealed guns or if there are more guns in households, would that mean more accidents or fewer accidents? Mm-hmm. I bet you'd see a completely different answer to that question. Well, I, it's always fun when we get to dig into the polling on these policy issues because too often it gets debated or discussed in sort of a very superficial way. And there's so much rich data out there going back over the decades. So I always love when we can find trend lines that go back to like the 50s and 60s and just see how how these debates have changed. Um, so the last story I think we're going to hit on this week then is all about parents um, and social media. Um, so there was a poll conducted, I believe, in conjunction with SurveyMonkey and Time Magazine. Um, it's our second SurveyMonkey poll in this show. We've still got to get John I know we on need here. To get, I know. We need John, to get. if you're listening, we're going to call you up. We we're need you on the show. Him. I know. Um, so parents who have never shared a picture of their children on social media, a majority of baby boomers, 53 percent, get smaller for Gen Xer parents, 30 percent. Only 19 percent of millennial parents have never shared a picture of their children on social media. These results make me feel so young because I <laughs> share. <laughs> You're my, a millennial. I'm, I'm really in spirit millennial parent since I share my children's pictures without abandon. <laughs> now, the I think some happy news uh, is that only 8% of millennials, 4% of boomers, and 4% of Gen Xers say that social media posts by other parents often or constantly make them feel like an inadequate parent. 
That's you know, good. That's good. I, You know, this is one of, like, they did an infographic, and that's cool and all. If you look at this infographic, if you don't actually look at the number, it looks like one. <laughs> oh, my God. So many millennials are so afraid. It's twice as many, but it's, you know, a really big circle for 8% compared to a medium-sized <laughs> circle for 4%. So, you know, I know they really wanted this this question to be, I'm sure, when they wrote this, they're like, oh, yeah, this is good because this is how people feel. But ultimately, not that many people admitted to feeling like an inadequate parent. Adventures in infographic design. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 36% of millennial parents think their friends' children participate in too many activities. That increases to 50% for Gen Xers and 53% for baby boomers. Um, and a major or half of millennials have purposefully t- bought gender-neutral toys for their children. So you don't buy your girl the pink princess dresses or the... Not until they ask for it. Not until they ask for it. So, yeah. So they, um, I'm a true millennial mom at heart, apparently. I am not an old mom in the suburbs. I am a true millennial mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then 60% of millennial parents think it is somewhat very or extremely important that their child's name is unique. Okay, that's where I'm, (laughs) that's where I go back to old (laughs) fuddy-duddy. You know, the names that like people make up based on, you know, what like some musician named their kid, like that kind of stuff. No, that's not. There are always some fascinating names whenever they release that like list of like the hundred most popular baby names at the end of each year that kind of have me yeah. worried about the future. Yeah. No, but, but, you know. You know, I'm sure if you told someone back in the year 1900 that they'd be naming girls Kristen. I don't know how many Kristens were around. There were Christines or – but maybe Kristen is like a name that if I got in a time machine and went back in time, people would be like, you weirdo. So, right. you know, I don't want to judge. I did hear last night when I was reading on Twitter about all the election results in Canada, they were wondering, has there ever been a head of government named Justin before? Because <laughs> that's kind of a, like a like a millennial Gen X or right, kind of name. Right, That's good. Do we have – dear listeners, know. have we ever had a Justin? What is the youngest sounding name on a head of government that's out there. If we had like a right a head of government name like Braden or something, then we would know. <laughs> then we would President, know. we'll get excited because President Jaden Federline <laughs> is happening one day, Margie. Um, I don't know about that. And so then <laughs> one other thing that is interesting, I mean, if you compare this, if Time had done and SurveyMonkey had done this poll years ago, I'm sure they would have found a different result. The percent that say it's very or extremely important for a couple to be married before they have children, and that's basically half among boomers and Gen X and just 42% of millennials. I'm sure that's consistent with what you found in the selfie vote, is it not? Very much so. That that for most millennials that they think – they do think that it's important for kids to have two people raising them, but they don't care if you're married. They don't care what gender you are. They just think it's good to have two kids – or kids being raised by two people if that's – possible to do. Um, And then the percentage of people who are stay-at-home parents, this was really interesting. Millennials, 23.2%. Gen Xers, 16%. Baby boomers, 22%. However, bear in mind, millennials probably have younger Younger kids. kids, So, I mean, baby boomers probably don't have tons of, like, newborn infants hanging around no. the house for them to take care of. So um, so that's that that could be a contributing factor. There. Yeah, that's probably the same thing, too, for, um, you know, the next question where there is kind of a bit of a difference. Do you, a percent that find the amount of parenting information available to be somewhat very or extremely overwhelming and millennials are more likely to find it overwhelming. And that's probably not because they don't want to go on social media, which is our next 
little nugget from Pew, but because they have younger kids where it is really overwhelming as when you get older, you spend, I, I think, I hope a little less time cruising the internet for the answers to your late night problems. <laughs> <laughs> the Google search box knows all. That's right. It is our confessional. Um, so yeah, so last but not least, we have some polling out from the Pew Research Center, um, sort of updating some of their trend lines on who uses social media. And it again, it continues to be the case that younger adults are the most likely to use social media. Ninety percent of those under the age of 30 say that they use a social networking site. Um, Interestingly, the trend lines have been going up for all generations, and now you have for those 65 and up, over a third say that they use social media. Um, There's not a huge gender divide. Women very slightly more likely than men to say they use social networking sites, but not a huge difference, 68 percent of women to 62 percent of men. And there is – I was surprised by that, in fact, because it's always been the assumption to me that – or I've always seen it reported that women, moms in particular, are these heavy social media users. And so I'm surprised to see that this has narrowed somewhat. Well, you should see the angry hate tweets I get. That suggests that there's lots of men on social media. (laughs) Yay. Yes, I know. I know, right? Um, There are not apparently big racial differences. Um, Actually, it's kind of a weird number. The proportion of black non-Hispanic people who use social media has declined, that for both Hispanic and white non-Hispanic, they're sort of plateaued. Um, but there actually looks like a sizable drop in this most recent poll of the percentage of black non-Hispanics who say they use social media. Hmm. Um, and then sort of unsurprisingly, rural respondents are the least likely to say they use social media. But again, the gap isn't huge. Um, so it's suburban people who use social media the most. Right. Help me. Help me get out of the suburbs. (laughs) (laughs) So, Margie, what are our key findings this week? So the Democratic debate, where a win can be both a win and a draw. Republicans say don't bump that Trump bubble quite yet. However, that may not be true for Fiorina. Uh, We can really learn about a post-event bump, though, from BFFs, Pope Francis, and Speaker Boehner. Uh, In Canada, it seems pollsters can take a bow, everybody. And while the Democratic electorate has a debate over guns, there may be more single-issue voters on the Republican. Side. And finally, some poll results that make me feel young. You can find us on Twitter at, at Margie O'Mero, at K Soltis Anderson, and at The Pollsters. You can also find us on Facebook, where throughout the week we will post findings from polls that we find interesting. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher. Don't forget to write a review. We love hearing from you. Tweet at us, send us notes on Facebook, let us know what you want us to cover. Um, we love hearing from you. Thanks. Bye.